This is an interview with the outgoing Dean of Princeton University School of Architecture, Stan Allen. The interviewer was Joseph Bedford, produced for attention, the Audio Journal for Architecture. The interview took place on September 17th, 2013, in New York. Okay. In those two years, there was this incredible tension and split within the school. You, you had the, the young history theory faculty pushing one direction, and you had Michael Graves sort of desperately holding on to historicism and precedent and, and so on and so forth. Alejandro has a has a difficult task because I think I think you have to respect the tradition of the school but not be constrained by that that tradition. Uh, How's it going? Yeah, great. Good to see you. See you. It's been a while. Thanks for having me over. Yeah. What I passed on to Alejandro was a school that was secure in its own um, understanding of itself. I think his job, in a way, is is to shake that shake that uh, secure uh, thing up a little bit. Coffee, uh, water, anything like that? Uh, both. <laughs> both would be great. You want milk? Uh, yes, please. Okay. Well, I I was born in the West. I was born in Colorado, and that's something that I don't think. Uh, People knowing me now think of as a kind of significant uh, factor, but I, I think it actually remains fairly fairly uh, significant. Uh, my father was an academic. Uh, ironically, he was an academic dean, and I actually got into architecture to get out of academics, and you know, you see how that worked out. But and my father moved from Boulder, Colorado, the University of Colorado, to the University of Massachusetts when I was a in my early teens. So uh, I did spend most of my formative years in the East, and then. Um, when the decision came to, to go to college. Um, I mean, growing up in college towns is great, but I really wanted to get to a city. And, and at, at, at that point, at least, Providence seemed like a, seemed like a city to me. So at what moment and uh, why did you decide to become an architect? Well, it's, re- it's, a, it's, a, it's a story I used to tell to the undergraduates because it was, it was in, in a sense, it was, it was pure, pure coincidence. Um, it was one of these classic... Um, freshman in college stories where I, I was a freshman at Brown University and I'd, I'd messed up my uh, registration and I found myself um, uh, missing a, a class at the last minute and there was, a, there was a guy down the hall in my dorm who said, you know, there's this architectural historian, Bill Jordy, supposed to be really interesting, why don't you take this architectural history course? And so it sounded interesting to me. I signed up and Everything just kind of clicked around that. Uh, Bill Jordy was a very, you know, Bill Jordy was always in the shadow of Vincent Scully. Um, I think in many ways, Jordy's kind of more interesting. Um, Jordy started off in American studies and then moved to, to architecture. So he always had a very, he had, interestingly enough, he'd written about sculpture and he'd um, done a PhD thesis on Henry Adams. So, so sort of American studies meets visual art. And that coalesced for Jordy around architecture. So, but I really liked the way he, he put architecture in a kind of broad cultural context. He also sent us out to the city of Providence with a list of things to look at. So we weren't only looking at architecture in slides. 
it also, I mean, I think there were two things about, about this, you know, just coincidental confrontation with, with, with Jordy. First of all, I realized that, um, you know, one of the things I'd done in high school was, was work construction in the summers. So I, I liked building things. I had some capacity to build things. So I had the, the kind of physical side of it. And then I realized, especially sort of, you know, those sort of formative years in, in, in New England, um, I'd always been fascinated with traditional New England architecture, vernacular architecture. And so that it all sort of made sense suddenly around uh, uh, architecture. And so at that time when you were coming into architecture, what were the architects that you recall admiring? Well, interestingly enough, there was a, there was a, a conference at RISD, um, those very early years when I studied architecture. Uh, this would have been, actually, I pulled the post, I was, you know, I was moving, I pulled the poster out in 1976. It was called Positions in Architecture, um, and it included um, Colin Rowe, gave a kind of brilliant uh, presentation. Um, uh, Jorge Silvetti, interestingly enough, showed very beautiful drawings of this house in Tunisia that they had designed. Graves presented, I wasn't super impressed with Graves, uh, I was also, I, I was very much taken with, um, I think Friedrich St. Florian presented, and the um, St. Florian, Abraham, even kind of super studio, and, and the, that more speculative side of architecture was, 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 I think, really fascinating to me at that time as a student. Um, so if you hadn't have got into architecture... Uh, what do you think you would have done? Sure. Um, the other thing you have to understand, growing up in, in college towns, and my, my father, before he, was a, before he became a dean, was an English professor. And, you know, even my, my friends in high school, uh, it, was, it was culture based on writing. I think the sort of... The, the people that we admired as creative artists were writers and filmmakers. It was not, it was not a visual culture at all. Um, I don't think I knew painters and visual artists at all until I, until I got to college. So am I correct in understanding that you were one of those students that were taught at the Institute uh, of Architecture and Urban Studies, um, coming in there as an undergraduate from Brown? Yeah, that's correct. Although I, I, um, you know, I, liked to use, I, I used to like to say that um, uh, I was perfectly suited to run an architecture school because I had the... the the world's most disorganized and confused architectural education. Um, I spent, um, I actually graduated from Brown only having been there five semesters. Um, so I, um, uh, well, it, it actually goes back to, I think it was, uh, I think Peter Cook was at that Positions in Architecture conference. And at that point, I, it had become quite clear to me that I wanted to study architecture more seriously. And uh, I had taken design courses at RISD. I had run through, you know, in very short time, all of the available architectural history courses at, at, at Brown. So by the time I was a sophomore, I was doing, uh, I was sitting on a graduate seminars on art history, architectural history at Brown. So they're basically, um, I, I, I sat down with Peter Cook and, and uh, had an interview with him about the possibility of going over to the Architectural Association, which... You know, I mean, in retrospect, if I'd gone over to the AA in 77, it would have been very interesting, I'm sure. Um, and um, I also sat down with Peter Eisenman, who was recruiting students for, for the, the, the Institute. Um, in the end, I didn't do either of those. I went to Tyler School of Arts program in Rome, um, 
and had a sort of wonderful semester in, in, in Rome, um, but also realized that the academic program wasn't so serious. Came back, did another semester at, at Brown, and then uh, out of sequence, I went down to the institute um, uh, for my senior year rather than my junior year. Told the people at Brown that I would only be going for one semester, and I told the people in the institute I was going for the full year. And at the end of the uh, first semester, there was a kind of crisis moment, uh, which was resolved by my agreeing to write a senior thesis that would be jointly supervised by Bill Jordy and, uh, and Kenneth Frampton uh, on, on Raymond Hood with a justification for being in New York, being that I, I had to be there to, to do the research on, on, on Raymond Hood. Was this prior to Kuhlhaus' exhibition? Uh, good question. I, I think it was contemporary with. And so more broadly, what was the institute like? Well, I mean, look, for a, you know, 20-year-old kid from, from, New Eng from a college down in New England, well, first, first of all, you have to, I mean, you have to remember, uh, I came down to New York in the fall of 1977, um, which uh, you may re recall, um, 1977 is Summer of Sam. The blackout. It was the blackout. It was, it was... Uh, um, Sam Berkowitz, right, was, uh, you know, uh, so, you know, it was shortly after the fiscal crisis. New York was a hairy place at that time. You didn't ride the subways after 9 o'clock. There were certain streets you just didn't walk down. No one was picking up the trash. It was back no, it was, you know, so, so you know, New York was, 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 was not a, an, an easy place to, to be. And I think the Institute also, you, you know, it, it, I mean, it, it, it really defined itself as a place that, that was, was feeding off of that energy in, in New York. And, and also, I think, you know, through no great um, planning on my part, I, I arrived at a, um, a very good time at the Institute. Um, I think that was, that was the point when the Institute was really kicking into its stride. Um, you know, you had this... Uh, I mean, the brilliance of, of the Institute is that you had the, Peter had gathered around himself the people who were doing most interesting work in, in theory in the U.S., and then you had this sort of constant stream of the sort of European intellectuals coming through, Tafuri and so on. But then he also was hooked into the, 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 the sort of mainstream New York professional community. So people like Franzen and, and Ed Barnes were somehow connected in, and then, of course, there was the, the October crowd and, the, and the, the, um, uh, the, the, the art world, you know, through, through, through Ross and Krauss. So it was a pretty, pretty vital mix. I mean, it really, you know, I think ev everything, you know, e everything that people have talked about about those years were, were actually true. I mean, you know, it, 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 it was, you know, I saw Ross and Krauss give, I'm sure it wasn't the first time, but I saw her give the the lecture notes on the index, you know, at, at, a, at a, uh, an evening event at, at the Institute. And, you know, we would, I don't know if you know the, the, um, the, the architecture of that space, which was which, uh, quite important, I think, actually. It was on the 20th and 21st floors of a, a small skyscraper uh, right, off, right south of Bryant Park on 40th Street. So you would come in, uh, and then, then there was sort of public space, which was used for exhibitions and lectures and so on, uh, with big big windows sort of sort of looking north over the over the park. And then the students were up on a mezzanine, where there were studios, and and in fact we had these these balconies that uh, 
you know, we, we would sit and watch the sun going down over, over New Jersey. Uh, and, um, and then there were, there were sort of the, the fellows' uh, offices were around the outside on, the, on the, the, the main floor, and then there were, there were actually some classrooms and so on on one, one, one floor down. So, uh, but that main space and the students, you know, always sort of clustered up there on the mezzanine looking down on that, I, it was, I mean, I think it was quite, uh, I mean, the, the, the architecture of the space really functioned to reinforce the, that, that, that sense of the... Um, uh, the mission of the institute, in a way. Who did, who did you um, meet at your time at the institute that you would say were lasting connections? Well, I mean, you know, I mean, it's the, I mean the people uh, you know, interesting enough, have continued to be be quite quite significant. Um, uh, um, I mean, it was it was Peter Eisenman, Tony Vidler, uh, Mario Gandalsonis, Kenneth Frampton, Mar- Mario Indiana, of course. Um, I mean, that you know, those were basically the people who taught us and. Also significantly, um, um, Rafael Moneo was was a visiting fellow, uh, so that's that's where I re- met met Moneo. So, so uh, these figures would literally give you desk reviews. They were quite well. No, um, uh, the structure the structure of the institute. Um, there was a studio course which was run by Mario Indiana, and it was it was very much based on the, you, you know, this this again it was even, I think, influential to the way that I thought about the undergraduate program at Princeton, um, that they were very conscious that they were teaching undergraduates from liberal arts schools, mm-hmm. and it was not meant to be a kind of, kind of pre-professional program. So, and also, it was, you know, it was based on the work they were doing at that time. So it was, it was, it was all about re- rereading and rewriting the city. Um, so uh, I think it was also, you know, it's also great because it, it, it again, it, it forced you out into the city as a, as a kind of laboratory. So that was the studio, and it was the city in the fall semester and um, suburb in the, in the spring semester. And uh, Mario taught, taught a theory class, um, and uh, you know, it was, at that time it was, it was pure semiotics. Uh, you know, we read De Saussure, but we also, what we did is we read Vitruvius and Towards a New Architecture, but sort of through the lens of, of semiotics. And then Tony Vidler taught the history course in the fall. It was basically uh, 18th century. We did, we did Ledoux. I mean, it was when he was doing his, his Ledoux work. Uh, you know, and we read Foucault and, and you know, other theoretical work that would be related to, to you know, thinking about, um, about that period. Uh, and, and then Ken Frampton taught the, taught the history course in the spring, which was, was 19th, 20th century. So, and the theory course continued, and Peter, Peter didn't teach. Peter was a kind of, you know, figure who was, was sort, of, sort of looking over everything, but he didn't actively teach. And uh, who else? Um, Bob Silman taught a taught a kind of kind of non-calculating, you know, with, with no no numbers, uh, but a, a structures seminar. And uh, Peter Wolf, who was a, who was a co-director with with Peter Eisman. Peter Wolf's a you may know he's a he was a planner, taught a planning history course, city history of the city course. So so a pretty comprehensive curriculum actually. To just contextualize the moment a little sure. more, we've, we've sure. spoken about the context of New York in 77, but also maybe I could ask you about the context of how this academic work or disciplinary work 
re related to the profession at the time? Well, from a personal point of view, I had come from uh, the sort of more art historical approach from, from Jordy, uh, and then coming down to New York. I mean, first of all, the linguistic analogy was a huge... I mean, it, 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 it seemed like it just suddenly opened a lot of doors uh, at, that, at that time. And it was also the, 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 you know, the sort of early stirrings of the, of the linguistic turn and, and the postmodern turn. Um, you know, so Bob Stern was hanging around the, the school and, and the, you know, the, the disciplinary context was the sort of white and gray uh, battle. And, uh, I mean, I would say in, uh, the way that it got framed at the Institute was, it was more uh, the, actually the sort of the whites and grays and, and the early postmodernism that was sort of associated with Scully was somewhat dismissed, um, although... Uh, Venturi, I think we read Venturi in, in, in Mario's class. We read Complexity and Contradiction. I'd read Complexity and Contradiction for, for a Jordy course. So, but we were still a little skeptical about Venturi. Um, but we also tended to associate... I mean, Peter, in a way, was his own thing. Peter must have been doing House 10 around that time. And... I mean, I think we sort of bought into the distinction that Mario made that, uh, you know, through the linguistic lens, Graves was about uh, the semantic and uh, Eisman was about the syntactic. So, but then, then of course, the third piece to the puzzle was, um, was the Europeans. Was, was the, this, was, this was the time of the American discovery of Aldo Rossi. And so I think we rejected... We rejected the kind of easy postmodernism, easy American historicist postmodernism, but we were also very, very skeptical about the persistence of, of modernism in a figure like, uh, like, like Meyer or, or Gwathmi, which by that time seemed already as if it was becoming a kind of kind of compromise with with sort of corporate uh, professionalism. So um, I, I think the, the the position I think both intellectually and as a kind of kind of design proposition that that well maybe not speaking for other people but for me certainly was was Rossi and and the the, the European architects of the Tendenza mm. um, a huge amount of excitement around that Rossi had come uh, Rossi came that year as a as a visitor as well actually no that's not correct he came a couple of years later uh, there was an exhibition of Rossi's work around that time. Right. Institute, huh. and that was very significant. Uh, Rem was there too, of course. Rem was right. there as a as a fellow. Could we unpack a little more you coming into the discipline at a time when the discussion of autonomy or the exploration of architecture as an internal language was on the table, and maybe to some extent the institute as a place for discussing autonomy. I'm thinking of Mario and Diana's first essay in, mm -hmm. in the first issue of Opposition. When they discuss Saussure in that essay, they pick up on Saussure's discussion of the arbitrariness of the sign sure. to sure. speak of a disconnection between function and form, right. which somehow liberates form right. exploration sure. and this discussion sure. of Syntax. It seems to be a very characteristic moment of sure. the discipline. Well, you, you see, you have to understand that um, the, the perception was that that kind of theoretical work, and, and you know, to expand that to in, include 
all, you know, the discussions around typology, um, Tafuri's work, certainly to, to certainly to mainstream professionals, and to some extent to, to sort of mainstream academics, was seen to be very much sort of out there and you know even even anti-architecture in some ways. But you know, in retrospect, it was deeply disciplinary, right? And so, so uh, I, I mean, it was a, it was a moment characterized by by deep theoretical reflection, but theoretical reflection that was very much based on disciplinary questions, typology, structure, organization, meaning, so on. So, um, what what didn't character? I mean, the the let's say, with the possible exception of of Ken Frampton, there there were were not larger discussions about architecture's sort of sort of social role or the politics of architecture. I just I don't recall those questions being debated so much. I mean I think I think to some extent that was part of the argument by from the point of view of people like Bob Stern and and, and Venturi, but but that was that was framed more around uh, questions of sort of populism. Um, that you know that some of this discussion was simply too esoteric, uh, you know, too much inside the discipline. But you know the 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 sort of sort of the the evolution of the theoretical discussion and 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 the the introduction of sort of cultural studies and and the kind of kind of critical theory from from the eighties. This just wasn't on the table really at, at at that time. I mean, it just it just wasn't it just wasn't part of the discussion so much. I remember looking at the conference proceedings that attached mm-hmm. the MoMA show of Cooper Union's work, which had been mm-hmm. uh, four or five years before. Sure, yeah, before. early 70s. And yeah. um, Eisenman um, spoke of Bannum's new book on L.A. as, to him, an example of reifying the status quo of, mm-hmm. of the urban sure. sprawl to which he sure. would pose an ideal work. Yeah, sure. And and that was also the one of the critiques of, of Venturi, of course. You know, I mean, and, and curiously enough, I mean, I had read... Uh, theory and design in the first machine age in in uh, in Geordie's courses, and admired Bannum's you know the kind of rigor of his thinking a lot, but but Bannum was not on our radar at all at that time either. I mean that that was curious curious thing. I mean I think that you know Bannum got rediscovered sort of later on, and um, I I don't know where he was even at that time because you know there was this weird period when he was up in Buffalo. And uh, I remember him giving a lecture in New York, uh, and I don't know, there were about ten or twelve people in the room. It just somehow people weren't interested in Bantam at that at that time. It was curious, right. I think. Uh, yeah, it was a different different set of issues that was on the table. Yeah. So you mentioned Cooper Union briefly. Maybe we could talk a little sure. bit more about that context. What was special about that school at that moment? Yeah. Well, um, my first experience with Cooper was actually at the Institute, and an uh, incredible series of seminars that, that Peter Eisman and John Haydick did, um, which a few Institute students would get invited to come down to Cooper uh, one day a week, and we would go up on the seventh floor in a classroom to sort of get away from everybody else. And uh, over the course of the semester, I mean, it's really quite incredible, um, the, the, the ground rules of the seminar were the students couldn't speak. And every week, John Haydick would bring the original drawings of, of a project in, put them up on the wall. Of his projects? His projects, yeah, yeah. Uh, beginning from the beginning, beginning from the Texas houses. Peter and, 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 and John would sit and talk about the work. Sometimes Slutsky would join in. 
and the students were the the silent chorus uh, behind. And yeah, I mean, this was really kind of incredible, you know, just to to hear John sort of walk through all this early work, to see all the original drawings, you know, see the emergence of the wall houses and and the the diamond houses. So, you know, that was, I mean, you know, kind of incredible uh, introduction to the place. And uh, the other thing you have to understand about about the Institute is that Peter and the other fellows and faculty would, would basically sort of, you know, I mean, Peter loves to pull strings, you know, he said, well, you should probably go to Yale, and I, we, we really think you should go to Princeton, and so they said, look, you're, you, you're, you're going to go to Cooper Union. And, you know, I mean, on the one hand, it, it seemed a little crazy to get a second undergraduate degree, but certainly, you know, this was the time in which John Haydick was, you know, functioning as a very, you know, charismatic teacher. I was excited about staying in New York. Um, the fact that it was tuition free. So, so you know, sure, I'll I'll go to Cooper Union. I caught Cooper at a very very transitional time. Uh, I I eventually um, I was eventually able to skip ahead one year. So I went I went through Cooper in 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 three years instead of two. I was three years instead of four, and so I graduated with with Jesse Reiser's class. But I started off in second year, so I didn't do first year. But, but Jesse's year, for example, was the last year to do the nine-square grid problem. The sort of classic Cooper Union of the 60s and 70s that had been documented in the, at the MoMA show was kind of breaking up. That was also the year that Bob Slutsky got just fed up with the place. He thought, he thought the direction was, was to, to him completely antithetical to the principles that, that you know, the modernist principles that, that, that he believed in. So he switched over to the, to the painting department. Was it when Raymond Abraham had just come in? Well, Raymond had been there for a while, but his, his influence was becoming more consolidated. It was actually when I was at Cooper that, that um, Aldo Rossi came as a visiting professor. And, you know, for Slutsky, this was just heresy. You know, this was symmetrical. It was, you know... Uh, and, and of course, Haydick saw Rossi through a completely different lens. You know, had nothing to do with typology and and rationalism. You know, it was it was more about you know the the quality of the light in Italy and you know so on and so forth. So, uh, and then you know figures like Bernard Schumi came in. Um, uh, so it, it it I would say it was a very very uncertain time at at, at Cooper. Liz was a couple years ahead of us. Um, you know, Evan Douglas was a year behind. Um, so, I mean, it was, you know, I mean, again, in retrospect, an interesting time, but a, but a very uncertain time. Could you say something about your Cooper Union thesis? Because that is a project you've uh, published in... Sure. So. Well, well, uh, as, as you know, the, the, the Cooper thesis organization is different. You don't have a single advisor. And um, so... The year I did thesis, which was um, uh, with, with, with Jesse, also Tomas Lieser sat back to back to me. So we had, we had John, we had Raymond, we had Rick Scofidio, Bernard Schumi, a strange cast of characters sort of coming around. But, um, but questions of theater were in the air, um, and um, it was the time of the, the Haydick masks, and... Um, you know, I think that, and in a, some sense, sort of returning to my my origins, which at that time were not so far so far away, um, the, this, the site of this kind of ruined uh, complex of mill buildings that, that then got got reconverted as this sort of 
uh, stage for for theatrical work, for experimental theatrical work. So, uh, and you know, I think the the there there was certainly some influence of uh, of Shumi in there in in the the sense of you know use of notation and um, the sense of you know architecture as performance um, and you know I think I mean I mean interestingly enough I would say that in my work that the Haydick influence appeared later I think partly because I'd come in as a transfer student. Um, I was always a little resistant to the kind of Cooper Union mythology, and uh, kept that a little bit at a at a distance. Um, you know, I mean, this was the other thing: um, the 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 cast of characters that had that, again that that sort of came in around the periphery at, at at Cooper. David Shapiro started teaching advanced concepts around that time, so so the idea of sort of architecture as narrative. Then there was a there was another guy. Um, uh, Jay Fellows, you, you know about Jay Fellows. Uh, no. Jay Fellows uh, died quite young. He he was a um, literary critic. wrote a, wrote a book on John Ruskin called The Failed Distance, which which Haydick had read and and was really taken with. He and he and he and David Shapiro taught advanced concepts. I'm I'm not quite sure. And and Shumi taught advanced concepts as well. Uh, I ended up taking both of them. Jay Fellows was was really interested in spatial narratives, and so again, this this was very much in 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 the air around that time. So, uh, there's a book on called Proustian Space. I, I can't remember the author's name, but um, so we were reading literary criticism that was spatially oriented, and then you know really thinking about the way in which. Architecture could be understood in in, in narrative terms. So, mm-hmm. so that 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 very much underpinned my thesis work and the, the thesis work of a lot of a lot of people at, at Cooper around that time. And 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 then the other person teaching advanced concepts was uh, was P. Adam Sidney. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know questions of film and uh, experimental film and and um, you know uh, so no uh, I, I I mean again I don't think we would have explicitly put it in those terms but 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 clearly the, the sort of temporal dimension of architecture was 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 being put into play there. So what happened after Cooper? Did, did you go straight to Princeton? <laughs> no 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 no. I I again this is part of you know my my <laughs> yeah. my my complicated uh, uh, trajectory. Uh, basically, I got out of school and went to work for Richard Meyer. The economy was picking up by that time, it's 1981, um, but it was, you know, still a little bit tough to find a job. And um, Richard would hire people who could draw well. Um, he hired a lot of Cooper Cooper graduates. Um, it didn't matter if you didn't have experience doing working drawings. He paid you so little that if it took you twice as long to learn how to do it, and you would learn from the young people in the office, that you know it, it was worth his worth his while. It, to hire people with less experience. So, and again, it was actually turned out to be a pretty good time to, to be in his office. Um, he'd won the competition. He'd won the competition for the uh, Frankfurt um, uh, Decorative Arts Museum, and uh, the, the the museum in Atlanta was 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 being designed. It was also it, what was what was good about his office at that time. The senior associates in the office were about twenty eight years old, and so. Uh, and it was a medium-sized office, 20, 25 people at that time. So I learned a lot. I mean, it, it really was, you know, kind of uh, boot camp in learning how to do construction documents, um, 
you know, I was the sort of fairly low man on the totem pole, um, but um, it, it, it was it was it was good experience, good practical experience. Um, I learned a lot from the the people in the office were very good. I learned a lot from them, but I also you know after about two years of that, I got kind of tired of it. Uh, and it was also, I mean, you know, again, I was I was low enough on the on the hierarchy. I didn't you know travel to the to the building sites and so on. It was very it was a fairly hierarchical office as well. Uh, but I got I got kind of tired of that after after two years, and uh, that was essentially when I when I. Um, decided to go over to Spain to work for Moneo. I'd gotten married in the meantime, and we'd, we'd actually, partly thanks to uh, my father-in-law, um, we had spent our honeymoon in Spain, and um, I had sort of looked up Moneo at that time, and I wrote him a letter, and um, you know, said I'd really love to come, come and work for you. And you know, typical Moneo, the letter sat on his desk for about six months, and I had assumed this just wasn't happening. He, then he was in the midst of a competition deadline. He sends me a letter, you know, can you, like, be here next week? So uh, I'd made some other commitments, and it, it, it was two or three months before I was able to sort of organize my life to get over there. But um, that would have been, it was in 1983. We, we packed it up and um, moved to Madrid, and um, I arrived at Moneo's office during the um, competition charrette for the Atocha railway station. It was an interesting experience because Moneo and Meyer had roughly comparable size practices at that time in terms of in terms of the work that was getting built. But Moneo's, you know, where Meyer had twenty five people, Moneo once once the competition was finished and the office sort of shrank back to its usual size, there were like three or four people in the, in the office. So and and again, I mean, fantastic people in the office. I mean. Again, through no great planning on my part, I we arrived in Madrid in '83, and Franco had died in I can't remember it was '74, '75. But it really took seven or eight years for things to to restart and start gaining momentum. And by the early '80s, things were really really kicking into high gear in in Madrid. This was the this was the time of the famous. Um, La Movida Madrilena with people like Almodovar and there was a series of artists and I think the 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 architectural work was was just beginning to 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 pick up speed. So it turned out to be a great couple of years to be in to be in Madrid. What about the style difference between Maya and Moneo? I would say that, that what I learned in Meyer's office was really more about the practicalities of getting, you know, work built in, in the US and you know what it what it meant to put together a, a beautiful set of working drawings for a complex institutional project. Um, I wasn't particularly interested in the design language. I mean, the other thing, just just to, it was also an interesting moment. It was when um, Meyer was, I think, shading off a little bit towards the postmodern at that at that particular moment. Um, there was a guy in the office called Michael Palladino who became a partner. He was the, the head designer for the, for the Getty. And um, Michael had um, gotten a post-professional degree at Harvard, studied with, with Jorge Sovetti. And Michael saw it as his mission to sort of bring history to the Richard Meyer office. So the, the, you didn't so much see that in Frankfurt or in Atlanta, Although, you know, I mean, Atlanta has a granite base with square windows and, you know, sort of, sort of rough stone. 
there was a there was a project that I worked on um, for the Des Moines Art Gallery where where Palladino was was really more the the, the sort of lead. I mean, Richard kept kept a very close eye on the design work, but um, but but you know you saw a bit of Palladino's hand in that. And you started started seeing some of this more sort of sort of baroque uh, um, moves in design in in, in plan uh, there. It was Michael Palladino who pushed Richard and the Getty Committee to go to visit Hadrian's Villa during the process of the design of the of the Getty. So, so uh, there was a, also a little bit of uncertainty in the in the Meyer work at that that period as well. But but no, I was never that interested in in Meyer's design language, and I never saw myself as, you know as sort of you know apprenticing to Meyer to learn that that language. But so I, no, I was much more interested in 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 Moneo's uh, design language uh, and also his 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 approach. I mean, even just the you know to go from ink on mylar working drawings and uh, to drawing. Uh, I mean, the, the in Moneo's office they would draw on a very very the the absolute lightest weight Canson vellum. Um, with with a soft pencil, with a with a two H pencil, and there was a kind of discipline to draw very precisely with this with this medium. I mean, it was super flimsy. I remember, the, I you know, two or three days into the my time at the office, I'd I'd constructed this very complex um, uh, upside down axonometric of the of the roof structure of the Atocha station, and I'd drawn on this lightweight vellum, which which is it's more or less the same weight as as um, you know sketch paper, and I said, okay, I'm ready to do the final drawing. Put it on heavier paper. He says, no, no, no. This is you know this is it. So it, I mean, just the the way in which the work was done was very was very different. You know, um, I mean, Richard Richard kept an eye on the design process, but you know, Richard was hidden away in his office. You know, Rafa would come down and sit down at the drawing table next to you and draw and. You know, as I've mentioned, the size already. I mean, it was just a very different feel to the way that the work was done in the in the office. We've mentioned the context of the linguistic turn. Do you say that by '83 in in Spain there was a question of regionalism? And I'm thinking in Frampton's critical mm-hmm. regionalism article probably came out at a similar time. If there was a regionalist argument, it probably would have appeared in Barcelona, but not in Madrid. The building I worked on the most was was um, was the museum in Merida, right. and you know, I think the the discussion around the building was, you know, it had to do with questions of construction and obviously the, the, the connection back to the kind of Roman. Mm. I think, if anything, was framed in terms of construction and materiality. If not regionalism, there's something there to do with being in Europe and to make a reference to a deeper history on a European continent right. where the Romans actually right. had been. It's a different thing to the U.S. context where his postmodern moment is... Right. Right. to some degree. Right. No, exactly. I mean, I think I think to in 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 that context, it it wasn't so much it wasn't seen as a as a as a swerve from past past practice. It it was it was consistent as a as a tradition. So you were there for a couple of years and then went to your master's at Princeton. Uh, yeah, basically, basically. So if you got to Princeton around the mid-80s, does that make yeah. it just about the height and maybe the end point of Graves' dominance just Precisely. before Hayes and Wigley? Precisely. Precisely. No, it was, it was exactly that moment. Right. And again, um, 
I arrived at Princeton at a moment of confusion and transition because pr precisely what was going on, uh, it was, I, I coincided with the two years then that Michael Hayes was, uh, was, was at Princeton. What happened was that uh, Moneo was offered, he, he, was, um, he was due to come to Harvard as the Kenzo Tange professor. Everybody in the office knew that he was going to, to Harvard at a, at a certain date, and we were all sort of, and, and also, you know, in our, my discussions with him, you know, he said, basically, it doesn't make sense for you to stay once I go to, go to Harvard. We knew he was going to Harvard, and one of my jobs in the office, he said, well, you know, I'm being considered for the chair, and I'd like you to help me put together the materials. And, and I'm thinking, this is never going to happen. You know, why would they choose this, you know, obscure European architect? And... Um, so I, I prepared, a, I basically prepared the, helped him prepare the dossier of, of projects and writings that, that was sent to Harvard for, for consideration for the, for the chair position. And so, uh, so he had already been scheduled to go to Harvard, but, but instead ended up going to Harvard not as the Kensetonga professor, but as the chair. So it, that was the point in which I, which I um, uh, came back to the States and... Um, but I was up in Cambridge doing some work for, for Moneo, and Jesse Reiser had been at the American Academy in Rome with Friedrich St. Florian. St. Florian offered Jesse a teaching position at, at RISD. Jesse didn't want to go all the way up to, up to Providence. He said, well, but you know, Stan is in Cambridge. Maybe he can do it. I went down and had an interview with, uh, with St. Florian. And so, so actually, Michael and I taught together at RISD Michael's last semester and then Michael came down to Princeton as faculty. I came down to Princeton as a, as a graduate student, also as an older graduate student. Um, it was um, uh, midway through September in my first uh, semester. I'd also I'd taken, the, I'd taken the registration exams, and I, I get a telephone call um, uh, from, from Polly. She said, there's an envelope here. I said, well, why don't you open it? It turns out I'd passed all the exams. I was a registered architect. Um, I remember telling Tony Vidler, uh, I said, I, you know, I passed all my exams first, first try. I said, don't worry, we won't tell anyone. So, yeah, I, I arrived down there, I would have been 86, I guess. So and why didn't you go to Princeton if you passed your exams already? Well, I, I mean, the, the lo long and short of it is I, I knew I wanted to teach and I, I needed a, a, a second degree. I also, I mean, the other thing I will say is that, that, of course, there was a bit of a dilemma. I had two degrees already, a professional degree already. Um, and I, I considered doing a PhD, but at that time, um, the, to do a PhD in architecture really meant you were exclusively going to devote yourself to, to a scholarly career. I went down to Princeton, you know, this was the sort of high theory moment, and I was not so interested in the design culture, which was still dominated by Michael Graves, but um, this this group of young Turks who were starting to uh, accumulate around, around Princeton. So, you know, the, what, the core of what became the assemblage group. So, it was, so it, was the, it was, Michael was there, and Beatrice came as a visiting professor that first year. Alan Colquhoun was on leave, and, and Beatrice came down to, um, uh, to, to fill in for, uh, for Alan. And then the following year, uh, Mark Wigley came. So in those two years there was this incredible tension split within the school. Basically, you, you had the, the young history theory faculty pushing 
one direction and you had Michael Graves sort of desperately holding on to historicism and precedent and, and so on and so forth. He would, you know, any, any, you know, these were the, I mean, in, you know, stylistically it was the sort of, sort of beginnings of, of deconstructivism. Any, any student with a kind of big diagonal or a curve in their plan, uh, Michael would refer to them as slashers. Right. So, and if Michael's stance still was about semantics and and mm-hmm. therefore meaning, was this crowd of young Turks about to kind of critique the, the meaning in a post-structuralist discourse, essentially? Yeah, I I, I mean, look, I I think it it was that. It was also um, you know Michael Hayes talking about practices of negation. I mean, it was 1986 was exactly the the the, the year that his piece on his um, Vanderoa appeared, which by that time postmodernism had become acceptable at the kind of corporate level uh, and it just seemed to be acquiescing to the market. So, so you know, practices of resistance, um, uh, negation, uh, critique was, was, you know, this was the, these were the questions that kind of preoccupied us as, as students. And the, the dominant figures were, were, were either Michael's sort of Frankfurt School Marxism and and then the emergence of of the, the deconstructivist discourse uh, through through weekly. So in this context of the critical, could we talk about assemblage? Well, I mean, it you know, I I, d- I definitely see it as a as a passing of a gen- generation and 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 really coalescing the, the the preoccupations of of that that generation. And I think, I mean, for, for me, there's a number of things that 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 would would characterize that. Uh, I mean, there you know there were still connections back to the opposition generation. Uh, Mario and Jorge were both on the on the board of Assemblage. And that that connection was was very much there. But you know, Catherine Ingram and 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 Mark and Beatrice and Michael uh, had a different set of preoccupations. So I, I think it was it was the opening out of the 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 the, uh, the theory of the seventies that had been much more um, uh, much more disciplinary. Opening out to a much broader interdisciplinary context that that could admit philosophy and and literary theory and 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 also cultural studies, um, the real questioning of autonomy uh, on the part of that generation that, that that opened up the 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 range of what could be considered uh, uh, architectural discourse and, and and critique, and it was reflected in the in in the journal. I mean, you know, I mean there was there were. Pieces by Mike Jennings in, in early on. There were my artists. You know, I mean, to the degree that at a certain point there was a kind of column called the strictly architectural, and that had come out of that had come out of editorial meetings where, you know, there were questions. You know, what 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 is architectural about such and such a piece? You know, um, but so I mean, basically expanding the range to include a broader. Uh, sort of sort of cultural studies perspective and and um, uh, uh, I think I think opening out to the theoretical discourse that was happening in 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 the art world in 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 literary theory and so on and and so really a much broader perspective so how does your time assembly and your time directing the Columbia AAD program correlate with one another I taught at RISD for another semester right out of right out of Princeton and then um, those were the last years of, of Moneo at Harvard, and so I went up and taught for a year um, at, at, at Harvard with, with Moneo. It was around that period of time that Michael asked me to come on as, uh, as projects editor of Assemblage. So 
I mean, strictly speaking, I'm, I'm you know, chronologically, I, I'm maybe more or less closer to the assemblage generation people. But because I had gone back to school um, and I, I sort of saw my affiliations with a generation, I mean, Greg, Greg Lynn and Sarah Whiting were both my, my contemporaries at, uh, at, at Princeton. I met Bob Somel shortly after uh, through, through Jeff Kipnis at, at, at Columbia. So I identified myself with that generation. Um, so as, and as projects editor, I was part of the editorial board, but let's say not part of the inner circle. And also, you know, um, I mean, I, I think I sort of relished that role as well, that as the projects editor, I was also slightly, I wouldn't want to say peripheral, but, but not, it wasn't, publishing projects was not the central mission of, of, of assemblage. So, so I, I, sort of, so I sort of relished that role. And then as it, 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 it corresponded to the, to the period when, so, so I taught up at Harvard for a year and that also you know, allowed me to be fairly close with, with Michael and, and communicate and you know, establish the lines of communication because assemblage was produced up in Cambridge and you know, things were not so easy in those days. But I mean, we had fax machines, but you know, we didn't have, we didn't have uh, uh, computers and internet. And then in, in um, 88 or 89, I got, I got hired at... at um, Columbia first first adjunct and then then I became uh, full time, and and took over the, the AAD program and and so that uh, around Columbia and around my own peers the people I considered my peers I think we started we started constructing our own intellectual context and to some extent it was um, in in opposition to that generation of our immediate uh, uh, elders who were who had also been our teachers at Princeton. Um, you know, clearly the sort of shift from from Derrida and a kind of kind of linguistic culture of meaning to Deleuze and and a culture of material and and, and performance. Uh, Quinter was we were you know was around and 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 beginning to be fairly influential. And and uh, Greg was was doing his sort of sort of early work. I mean, it, uh, you know, I think it's important to. Greg's sort of theoretical framework around smoothness and continuity was in place actually before he started working on the computer. Mm-hmm. I think pe- people see it as a people see it as coming out of the computer work, but um, you know, with the I mean, when you go back to article he published in Assemblage, um, and you look at the, there's there's there are no computer images in that in that uh, in that piece. I think it's called animate form. I may be wrong, but so that that was my role in a sense was triangulating between assemblage, but and my role as projects editor, and then beginning to construct in the early 1990s this this new context around um, around Columbia. Mm. I understand that the computer was quite central to Columbia during the 90s. So how does how does that new well sure but see see I think a lot of that was already in place before the computer came right, right? see I okay. I started teaching Columbia in eighty nine and the, the the we we set up the paper, so called paperless studios in I think ninety four so so there was a lot of the structure and the uh, the, the sort of debate uh, uh, around the studios was. Was really already happening before the computers were, were, were actually there. Honey Rashid was a was a, another kind of important protagonist there, and it was also generational. You know, I mean, Honey, Greg, uh, Jesse Reiser, coming in later to teach up at Columbia, and myself. And you know, this was the other thing, right? We were young faculty. 
there's not a lot of work around that time, and we would we would all do competitions and we would be competing against one another. But that was also a kind of platform for sort of testing some of these ideas. And um, it, it's not so much that we were sort of rejecting the the, the work of that previous generation. It just we we were we were trying to construct our own agenda, sort of intellectually and 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 uh, as a kind of design practice. And, you know, I think uh, Shumi should get a lot of credit in this, you know, I mean, he, you know, Shumi's working on the, on the AA model, and part of that was, you know, you get a lot of talented young people, you give them a lot of space, but you also establish these competitive relationships with, with mm-hmm. among them. And, you know, you give them exhibitions, you give them publication opportunities, but they're also fighting for the exhibitions and the publication opportunities, and... Uh, so it that that really helped build up the 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 work around that around that that period of time. But as I said, a lot of it, and then and then there was the influx of visitors. I mean, people like Toyo Ito, people like Ben Van Berkel, that that came through uh, Columbia around that time, and 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 I think you know laid the foundation for a lot of that. So so when the computers arrived, I think a lot of the sort of intellectual framework was already in place for understanding how that, that might fit into the design culture. How does this relate to a transformation of scale of your interests in infrastructure? Like, At what point mm-hmm. did you set up your field operations practice? Mm-hmm. But in terms of the kind of materialist conversation right. around Delanda and sure, sure. Columbia? Well, that, um, that, that came a little bit later, although I would, I would say that the, the seeds of that were, were probably there. I mean, there's a kind of episode that I haven't talked about, which was, you know, coming right out of Princeton. Uh, the the Campo Marzio work that I did was actually done at Princeton uh, as an independent study with Tony Vidler. And, you know, that was very much marked by its moment, in a way, right? I mean, at the sort of thinking, I mean, in a way, it was the sort of synthesis of Princeton's allegiance to history overlaid with, with the, 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 the new interest in, in deconstructivism. So Piranesi becomes this sort of privileged figure who's, who's constructing a language out of fragments, but, but fragments of the historical past. So, so I got fascinated with the Piranesi Campo Marzio, continued it as an independent work after I, after I graduated, and published it in Assemblage, uh, first major publication. And then coming out of that, I mean, of course... Campo Marzio is field-like to, to, to some extent, although it's a, very, it's a figural field, right? It's a, it's a field of figural fragments, right? It's not a field condition in the, in the way that I sort of later, later formulated it. The, the way I would describe it is uh, this. First of all, I think it was, it was, it was both the New York context and it, was, and it was Shumi who was, I think, pushing the younger faculty to think about studio, studio problems that had a kind of larger scale... Uh, relevance. So, you know, not to be doing, you know, houses or institutions or something like that, but to be doing urban projects. So, so that was very much part of my studio teaching practice. Um, and the ideas about field conditions that originally uh, emerged in, in that context. But then I, I would say it was also to some extent an alternative way of theorizing the computer once the computer got into the studios. In fact, the first time I ever used the term field conditions was the first the, the first computer studio at, at Columbia. And I was sort of searching around for a thematic to deal with the computer. You know, Greg had this ready-made theoretical... Greg and I taught the first two computer studios at, at, at Columbia. 
and Greg had a ready-made theoretical framework with, with smoothness and continuity and the ability of the, of the computer to model sort of, sort of dynamic forces and, and you know, the famous Darcy Thompson uh, phrase that, that form is a diagram of forces. So he had a sort of ready-made theoretical apparatus to deal with the computer. And you know, I think Greg deserves all the credit he gets for devising the sort of early protocols of, of computer form generation. I wanted something different than that, uh, you know, partly because just as a sensibility, I was less interested in that. Also, it was very object-oriented, right? I mean, you may, in, in Greg's studio, the students designed objects that were uh, marked by the, the f- field of forces. I was more interested in the field itself, and, uh, and it seemed to me it had more um, urban relevance, that, that you were working with the the, the city as a field of forces in, in a way. But then I think as a kind of sensibility, the, the, the notion of a language that was more serial and iterative uh, worked with the sort of uh, abstraction of the iterative procedures of the, of the computer. So, so it, it, it was a kind of, it was, it was working with the logics of the computer, with my understanding of the logics of the computer as a kind of abstract machine that works iteratively and, 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 and with serial procedures. But it was an alternative to the way that that Greg was was theorizing the the, the computer. So, and it was also it was simply it had a, uh, I mean I mean with with Greg this was also the emergence of the biological analogy you know coming out of Deleuze and and Delanda, and my references tended to be more cultural. They they came from the art world, from from you know Zenakis, from music and um, um, people like Barry LeVay in, in, in art world, post-minimalist art practices and so on. So, so it's a diff- different, different set of references and, and a, a, a slightly different uh, uh, way of, of theorizing the, potential, the design potential of the computer. One of the things which seems unique about your discourse is your focus on representation, thinking of the second book. Um, would you locate inspiration or influence for looking at the techniques of representation at this time in this context of the computer and infrastructure with encountering Robin Evans at Harvard? Well, that's, you see, that's been constant. That's been a constant parallel. Uh, I, uh, I shared an office with, with Robin Evans at, at Harvard. Uh, I remember him giving the um, persistent breakage um, uh, chapter of, of the projective cast as a lecture at Harvard. And you know, I mean, I mean, we were, I was personally just, you know, blown away by the sort of brilliance of, of, of Robin Evans, uh, both, you know, both in his formal written work, but, but also just, you know, simply as a critic or, you know, just somebody to talk to, you know, I mean, it was, was so, and, and yeah, I mean, certainly going back to Cooper Union, but even going back beyond that, I mean, this was part of Mario Indiana's um, teaching at, at, um, at, at the Institute was, preoccupation with questions of representation. So that was, you know, almost in my sort of DNA and, and, and it, it continues to be. So, um, and, and it, it, but it certainly did sort of coalesce around, I mean, you know, Evans, I think, just concretized so many things that I was thinking about and, and speculating about. I mean, I'd also done these exercises with, uh, with John. There was a two-year period at Cooper Union where, where they did the musical instrument problem. Uh, our year was the second year that they had done it, and it was one of those cases where, where you know, John and John cooked this thing up and gave the exercise to the students. These amazing results, you know, beautiful, beautiful drawings, and 
and you know some that were very inventive. You know, the, the there was a student who un, unrolled the trombone and made this single kind of long drawing, and you know sections of clarinets and violins, and and uh, you know beautiful drawings, but also tending to be very intricate and and and, and so on. And so, uh, typical sort of contrarian second second year students. You know, we, we when when it came time for us to do this. You know, we didn't want to repeat any of the models that we had seen from last year. I mean, the, the sort of freshness of the exercise had gone off a little bit, and, and we were, it was already almost mannered. You know, you were already almost com- commenting on the, the first year. So, so I, I, I drew a triangle. The, the idea was to, you know, a triangle is nothing, right? Um, but I drew the triangle in such a way that it was projected through space and rotated and turned and, you know, very complex series of projective operations and so on, and... And uh, John saw this drawing and said, I'm going to give you a little assignment. So he wanted me to draw the geometry of the 90-degree projection and the way that he understood the sort of collapse of space and so on. So I constructed a whole series of drawings for, for, for John at that time, too. So, so, but yeah, that question of representation has been a, a, a constant one. But I, I, again, I would insist on questions of representation as technical concerns within the discipline as opposed to the way in which you know in the in the in the 70s and the 80s representation was seen in terms of architecture as a system of representation this was partly why robin evans i think was so so important that right. that he gave he articulated the 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 specifics of those questions uh, in in ways that the earlier discussions about representation in architecture, I don't think I don't think had done. The the great thing about Robin Evans is you know he was I mean he was such a kind of uh, stubborn empiricist. Right. You know I mean uh, I remember that there was a student who'd done a series of drawings, done these axonometrics from below, and in the background of the drawing there were some clouds, and and you know and 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 uh, Robin asked him well. Uh, why, why did you draw the clouds in perspective when the building is in axonometric? And he goes, no, no, the clouds are in axonometric. I, I constructed, the, you know, he did, the, the student didn't realize if you had actually drawn the clouds in axonometric, in parallel projection, all you would have was a gray fog, right? So, I mean, you know, he had that kind of mind, you know, that, no, it was, I mean, it was a pleasure just to watch the mind, that mind in action. To approach a little bit your deanship at Princeton, um, could we <laughs> right. speak um, um, about your view of Princeton um, at that time before you took over the deanship? Where was it at as a, a school? Well, um, it, it, this this coincided with the, the moment when Jim Jim and I had just won the Fresh Kills comp- competition and strong interests around landscape urbanism. I think I think what appealed to me about about Princeton was, first of all, the, the, the strong interdisciplinary culture. Also, the, the way in which Princeton, where the, the MR program is bracketed by the undergraduate program on the one hand and the PhD program on, on, on the other hand. So it's always going to cast architecture in a kind of broader cultural, cultural context. I, you know, I will say that, that I felt that the design culture was undercooked at the time that I, that I arrived there and that, that we could reinvigorate the design culture of the school by building on that sort of larger cultural context. It's, it's unfortunate the debate was often framed as sort of 
history theory versus design, I, I think that's a kind of false, false dilemma. I think there were a couple of things that were happening. I mean, one of the things is that I think the theoretical discourse had simply moved on to a different, different set of issues. You know, this was the time of those debates between the, about the post-critical and so on. Uh, for me, the post-critical never implied post-theoretical. It simply implied uh, a different set of theoretical issues. For me, theoretical issues that were much more engaged with, with contemporary problems, with, with questions of the city, with questions of sort of even rethinking the practice of our architecture itself, so that there was a kind of, you know, I mean, if you want, I mean, even, a, you know, a different cast of characters, you know, you know, a figure like, like Latour becomes important uh, at, a, at a certain point. So, so I, 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 I mean, I, I thought we could, we could kind of build on that culture um, that is so specific to, to, to Princeton in a way, but, but to, to really re-energize the design culture of the, of, of the school. Uh, I think that the second point, because of certainly my own interests, is to, to make the city a, a, a primary object of teaching and research at the, at, at the school. You know, I mean, I think, I think that was accomplished on the one hand uh, uh, by a very strategic series of, of uh, visiting appointments. The first people I invited were uh, Iñaki Ablos and Juan, Juan Herreros, uh, and then we brought Sana in, and then later Mencia Tunyon, and then, and then David Adjaye, and then finally Philippe Brahm. So, and also the idea that, that all of those visiting critics would come for, for three years running. Uh, so that they would become part of the, the culture of the school. So, so if you will, that was the project at the sort of upper level. And then, again, just taking advantage of the small scale of Princeton and, and teaching myself in the first year. Uh, Ralph had taught in the first year, and, and I think he got it from, from Cooper Union, as Haydick had always taught in the first year and in, in those, those times. So, and it's, you know, that's really the pleasure of Princeton is the the scale of the place that, that will allow the dean to, to be very actively teaching in the school and the fact that if you teach the first year studio after two or three years you've taught two-thirds of the, of the students, students in the school. So my approach to the deanship was, was to, to be an educator and not, a, not an administrator. You know, to be very present in the studio in the classroom and, and um, so it was less programmatic than it was, I think, you know, sort of, sort of dependent on, on just being present in, in a way. I mean, again, I sort of joke about this thing of having had a very disorganized architectural education myself. I was incredibly lucky to be exposed to, to some incredible teachers at, at very key moments in my own architectural education. So, so that it, it, to, to me, it's less about structuring a program and the sequence of courses and, you know, uh, it's just... Um, bringing in the best possible people and then giving them room to room to work. I mean, I think that's something I learned from from Shumi. You know, is is uh, the the job of a dean is to kind of uh, structure the ecology and then let that ecology run in a way. You know, as much as anything else, it's just it's just exposure to to the the, the best possible people that you can bring in. Would you say it's fair to describe Princeton during your deanship as a ground zero of, of what you've discussed as the post-critical or other terms, the projective or the pragmatist term? See, I, I don't think it was I don't think it was form, uh, programmatic in, in, in that regard. Mm-hmm. I, I think it was really uh, and and I think um, 
you know, I mean, uh, certainly there are plenty of other people in the school who would who would probably disagree with that uh, with with that that characterization. So, I think it was much more structured around specific questions and specific programs than it was a kind of. And and I think you know the other thing is, I mean, you know, Jeff and Sylvia and uh, I mean, have you know, each one of those people have have a their, their own position, which which is is sort of nuanced in regard to that debate. I mean, frankly, I found that debate completely baffling and, and, and unproductive. For one thing, as soon as you're having the debate, you are already in the space of the discursive and you're no longer dealing with those questions. If, you know, if anything, this is, this is a slightly my, my criticism of, of Bob and, and, and Sarah. You, you know, I mean, again, the irony is that you know, Bob and Sarah are both fundamentally academics, right? So, you know, you know I mean, part of, part of I, th- I guess, my position is to to insist that practice itself has its own intellectual power and that it gains its intellectual power through its own operations, not by appealing to an outside, outside discourse. And if, if you take architecture seriously as something that, that, that can be about ideas, I think you, you, you have to have a kind of faith that those ideas are embedded in the stuff of architecture itself and not in an in an outside uh, theoretical or verbal discourse or written discourse. So, so I mean that's part of part of the reason I always insist on the parallelism of my written work and and my my practice work that that one is not dependent on the other, but they're 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 just they're 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 simply different techniques, and the technique it, it has its own capacities. There's certain things that 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 you can. You can deal with in a written text, and there are certain things that you, you deal with in a in a building or a project, and you you have to respect the differences, um, but not to value one one over the other. So I mean that that's more of a personal position I think than it is a programmatic position as a as a dean or a, or an educator. I mean for me it's it's also one that part of my part of my attitude as the dean in, in a sense was to to give the PhD program and that work, it's as much space, you know, not to try and, I don't know, you know, tease out design lessons from the PhD work or, 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 or impose a design agenda on the PhD work, but, but basically to say that it has its own logic and give it, give it the space for that logic to, to play out. Given the context of Princeton as a place where people went mm-hmm. as a finishing degree to become mm-hmm. teachers, and Ralph had created a hub of historical theoretical sure. work there. So if that was in play when you arrived as a dean and you were finding a way to make architecture as mm-hmm. a practice engaged, mm-hmm. how did the impulse to engage find its guidance from kind of stance created in history? Mm-hmm. I guess as a generation gone through assemblage, the critical political impulse of the late 90s. Yeah, yeah I think it also, it, it, it had to do, I mean... You know, there's this phrase which is which is a bit suspect. I think I think today, although I I would still uh, I I think has a kind of validity. The, the this notion of kind of design intelligence that the tasks of the architect today are much more complicated, and I think an intelligent architect of necessity is drawing on a much broader range of of of, of material than. You know, purely a kind of technical approach approach to design would would imply, or a, let's say even a purely kind of disciplinary approach to design would 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 imply. And so, in training young architects, in a way, you 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 have to train them as critical thinkers as much as you're training them 
in being facile with the computer and being very productive and you know having a having a kind of kind of kind of mastery of the of the the the, the techniques of, of of design it just you know the 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 people who are going to thrive in the field today it seems to me are those who are able to to kind of reinvent the terms of practice and that's a that's a complex that's a complex task that requires intelligence and 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 critical thinking that is always going to draw on a much broader range of, of, of material than, you know, simply a straight design education or a straight history theory education. You know, it's, a, it's going to be some sort of, sort of mix and hybrid between, between the two. And I think that's what Princeton is uniquely positioned to, to, to do. One way to frame that in terms of contrast to Princeton in the 60s and 70s, mm-hmm. Uh, when Geddes came in, he'd just come off the back of the Geddes Spring Report, which basically said that we had to engage practice. So mm-hmm. half of his deanship sure. was setting up all these interdisciplinary relations. But also, he said that practice had to be guided by history theory. So mm-hmm. the other half mm-hmm. was to encourage sure. the Framptons and the Viddlers. But he named the undergraduate courses Values, Concepts and Methods. Sure. Sure. And that term, Values, was sure. sort of in the air as, as part of a 68 generation yeah. of yeah. values that would help the architect to engage or criticize mm-hmm. status quo. So from the point of view of a different generation, and I guess the generation mm-hmm. X rather than mm-hmm. 68's a generation, sure. there's a yeah. question of how that relationship of values provided by history theory and, mm-hmm. and engagement mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Go, go together. Yeah. No, I think for Bob, uh, you know, there was also, I mean, the other thing that, that, that was very important in, in, in Bob Getty's time is, is a kind of, um, and it was part of this, 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 this kind of ethical imperative, is is to engage the social dimension of, of architecture. I mean, to, to bring in Suzanne Keller and and, uh, and and then Bob Gutman, you know, very important figure. I mean, you know, I mean, this was one of the big losses of the time that, that I was at, at Princeton when 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 Gutman died uh, suddenly. And and that to me is the you know really positive, continuing legacy of of, of the Gettys the Gettys years. I think that I think that the issue is that that. The question of what constitutes architectural ethical and social imperative today has changed. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we're dealing with a whole new, new set of issues, to, especially to the degree of putting the putting the city at the center of, of the investigations. Is that 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 architecture needs to learn from the world outside? It, it, it in a sense, it, in architecture you want to encourage a kind of sense of engagement among among the students. You know, engagement with with issues you know outside the the sort of narrow academic, academic realm. Uh, you know, I think the, the, the question that sort of needs to be asked today, I mean, I think that the, the, for a younger generation of students, as well as for a younger generation of faculty that we're now sort of seeing in place at the school, although not enough, I think, the, the means with which to engage that those sort of, sort of social issues are, are much more uncertain. I, I don't think that the, the, the kind of mechanisms that... that uh, that, that Bob put in place and that belong to more traditional sociological approaches are are effective anymore for for architects working working in the present and I think this is on the one hand a result of our success in in a way we no longer have the luxury of, of critiquing from the outside because we've been absorbed into the machine mm-hmm. and I think that the, the problem today is really more how do you how do you structure that kind of critique from from within and how can that how can that that be more effective with with you know the issues that that we're dealing with with today that are 
that are much more complex, much more diffuse. I mean, we're, we're dealing on the one hand with the, the kind of uh, diffusion of, of knowledge across the globe, um, and on the other hand with you know, issues like uh, the, the, the prevalence of questions of, of uh, environmentalism and so on that have, have also uh, the, the, the speed with which mainstream media and mainstream discourses absorb progressive propositions has, has made, I think it's made the job of the sort of a- ambitious architect or intellectual much, much, much more difficult, much more difficult. So that, that to me becomes the, the question that people need to work on today. You spoke a little bit about your agenda coming into the school as dean. How do you think the design culture has changed over the course of your deanship? Well, I, I, I mean, I guess I would, I would say that, that I think probably every dean goes through this, uh, this trajectory where um, you, you, you think in those early years that you're going to turn the culture completely upside down, and then with with time, I think you understand that your your changes are going to be kind of kind of incremental. Uh, I think the the kind of repositioning of the school around uh, some sort of healthy dialogue between the design culture and the history theory culture uh, is is really what sort of emerged in the in the later part of the the, the, the deanship. Also, I think I think there's been a continuing evolution of the history theory culture as well. I mean, and, and I think Beatrice gets a lot of credit for this. That it's a it's a history theory culture that's project based and and engaged with with objects and and even even design propositions. So, but I think you know I I think if I if I look at the the sort of moments that I think have been successful and and the the aspects of the school that I think have been successful, it it is in the if you will a kind of Kind of third space between pure design culture and pure pure history theory culture, where where uh, this notion of a kind of design thinking and the potential of rethinking and reinventing the practice, I think you see it to some degree in some of the some of the good thesis work. I think also, you know, I will say that that again in the best of the thesis work, I'm sort of continually surprised by the level of invention and creativity in the part part of the students, and then in their ability to translate that into their own project once they get out of school. I mean, again, I think, I think this is the best quality of Princeton is the, the independence of, of the students. I think if Princeton does anything, it, it, it cultivates independent thinking. And to see the way in which certain students have sort of taken the, the sort of mix and the ecology of Princeton, and then they've gotten out and they've, they've turned it into their own, to their own thing. And you can, you can, Trace some of those ideas back to the Princeton context, but but they're also they've also made them their own in, in, in a way, and that's that's very satisfying. I mean, you know, I mean, as an educator, the sort of you know you know, I mean, it's 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 a truism, but I I, I think it's something that, that that resonates that you know you you don't want to see a reflection of yourself in your students, or at least I don't want to see a reflection of myself in my my students. Uh, I mean, that to me would be you know, very boring and unsatisfying. You know, you're simply, you know, sending out replicas of yourself in, 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 into the world. The most satisfying moment is when you can trace it back to certain things that happened at Princeton, but they've gone a completely different direction uh, from there and, and really made it their own. And that's, that's, that's something that's quite satisfying. What would you say were the least successful aspects of Princeton's architecture culture for you or the most difficult things about the deanship? 
Well, I mean, look, um, I mean, the, the sort of problem there is you, you really have to speak a little bit more in institutional terms. Um, what was so dynamic and exciting about Colombia in, in, in the 1990s was the sense of experimentation in the school and the notion that you could, you could sort of take risks with, with young faculty. Um, and there's something about Princeton, and Alejandro has tried to attack this to, to some extent. You know, there's a kind of hothouse culture to Princeton that nobody can teach at Princeton unless you're already a star. I, I missed that ability to experiment a little bit, you know, to bring in a 30-year-old faculty member, give them an advanced design studio and say, just run with it, you know. I mean, I, you know, part of my own experience, you know, I was, I was 28 years old when I started teaching and, you know, I was teaching students who were a couple of years younger than me or in some cases older than me, you know. And, and so uh, if, there's, if there's something that I have trouble with at Princeton, it's, it's that, it's that sort of hothouse culture that I think constrains the ability to, to experiment. Uh, it belongs to the size. I mean, it's just, it's a fact. It's not going to go away. It's not going to change. But uh, it, it's not an agile place. You, you, you know, it, it, it's, it's difficult to make changes, again, because, you know, it, because it's so small, there's no room for failure, you know. You know, I think in some ways, schools need to risk failure in order to, in order to move forward. What do you see as Princeton's position or role within the field as a whole? And what would you say is the nature of Princeton's School of Architecture as an institution? And what would be your advice to the incoming dean about what the school might need to do to strengthen its position mm -hmm. over the coming two or three decades? I mean, look, I, I think there's... Alejandro has a, has a difficult task because I think, I think you have to respect the tradition of the school but not be constrained by that, that tradition. In a, in a very positive way, I think, I think Alejandro is thinking about the problems of the present and the future of the, of the school. People don't realize that, the, that I, I came into the school actually at a time of crisis. I mean, it's, it's, it's 11 years ago, and, and you know, every, everyone's memory has uh, kind, of, kind of erased this. So, you know, I feel, you know, part of, part of my job had been to bring the school back from a, from a kind of crisis situation, and I, I think... In a way, what I passed on to Alejandro was a school that was secure in its own um, understanding of itself. I think his job, in a way, is is to shake that shake that uh, secure uh, thing up a little bit. My sort of one criticism of the state of the school as I left it is that it had become a little too comfortable. I think uh, introducing a measure of discomfort is probably a good thing at this point in the school's history. Good. Yeah, okay. thanks very much. Sure, no problem. Perfect. Yeah. All right. Brilliant, thank you. Okay, see you. See you. You've been listening to an interview with the outgoing Dean of Princeton University School of Architecture, Stan Allen. Thanks to Joseph Bedford, doctoral candidate in architecture at Princeton University, for being our host, and to Stan Allen for being our guest. The interview was produced for Attention, the audio journal for architecture.